This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Dr. Victoria Arbor, one of my favorite people to talk to since she is an ankylosaur expert and ankylosaurs are the best dinosaurs. I don't agree, (laughs) but it was a good interview. Yes. We also talked about Ghostbusters. We did, because it's a lot about Zool, the new ankylosaur. Mm -hmm. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Olora Titan. And we have a ton of dinosaur news. As per usual. Yep. <laughs> but maybe not in the future. Depends what the survey says. That's true. Maybe there'll be more in the future somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Blaze Campbell, and Trent Carbajal. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you and all of our patrons. And if you want to join this awesome group of people, check out our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. Yeah. So first of the news is an article published in Nature's Scientific Reports, and it's a really great skeptical article looking at what appear to be the sensory organs in the snout, which is technically called the rostrum, kind of the upper part of the snout of dinosaurs, and their features called neurovascular canals. So... We've talked about the T-Rex article where they talked about how there were likely scales that were very sensitive around the mouth, and that's related to these types of canals. I think the ones that they're talking about are a little bit more connected, and they're the types that you find in something like a Spinosaurus. And you also see them in Pliosaurids, which are sort of like Mosasaurs. You know, they're those aquatic animals that are marine reptiles. So the idea is that these neurovascular canals are used to detect prey in the water. So alligators have them on their snouts (laughs) and other animals do. You know, they can detect electrical signals. I think it's like the ones that hammerheads have on their head too, if I'm not mistaken. So kind of a handy thing to have if you're in the water, theoretically. But what they did is they looked at Neovenator, which is an allosauroid from the Isle of Wight. And since it's an allosauroid, it has ziphodont teeth. Hopefully I pronounced that right. It's not in any dictionary that I looked in. I, I guess I need to get new dictionaries, which are generally thought to be used for cutting through flesh. So if you think of any kind of carnivorous dinosaur teeth, they're larger, they're serrated and, you know, sharp, 
all that kind of stuff. But if you look at animals that eat aquatic slippery prey, they tend to have more spear-like teeth because you just kind of want to stab through the fish and keep it from wiggling away. You're not trying to slice it into pieces. So it's kind of a different way of attacking animals. And sometimes they also have cone-shaped teeth like mosasaurus did to crunch through shells, but they wouldn't have these serrated ziphodont teeth. Another clue or potential clue is that these allosauroids have grasping hands and they also have a body type that looks like it's adapted for terrestrial predation, basically the ability to run and kind of get after its prey. And that's not really the kind of thing you would expect to see from an aquatic animal. So then the question is, since Neovenator has these same apparent sensory organs on its snout, those neurovascular canals, was Neovenator also aquatic or were these neurovascular canals used for something else? So the authors think that Neovenator was still terrestrial and not aquatic. You know, there's several pieces of evidence. You've got those teeth, the hands, the ability to run. It doesn't really seem like there's anything aquatic going on there. What they say is, quote, we propose that enlarged neurovascular facial canals shouldn't be used to exclusively support a model of aquatic foraging in theropods and argue instead that an enhanced degree of facial sensitivity may have been linked with any number of alternative behavioral adaptations, among them defleshing behavior, <laughs> nest selection or maintenance, or social interaction. So that immediately made me think of that T-Rex article because they, there was that whole like T-Rex as a sensitive lover thing that was going around with everybody because they have sense organs around their snout that appear to be good. Mm -hmm. But then there were also similar comments like, you know, they could see how warm the nest is or they might use them during mating or whatever. All sorts of nice uses, you know, having good senses is always a good thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be aquatic. Defleshing, though. Yeah, defleshing. <laughs> I guess so you can feel your way around a body. Because, <laughs> you know, depending on where their eyes are versus where they're biting. Sure. You might not be able to really see exactly what you're doing with that animal you're chewing on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really interesting. I mean, that's one of the main things people use to talk about how Spinosaurus is likely aquatic is it has these neurovascular canals. So it may potentially support it, but like they say, it shouldn't be the exclusive thing that's used. You need to have a lot of other evidence to go along with it. Next up is an article published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, and thanks to Chris for sharing on Twitter. It was written by Lawrence Percival and others, and it's all about the Triassic-Jurassic extinction. So I think a lot of people don't realize this, but there was actually a mass extinction in the middle of dinosaurs' reign. Oh, in the middle? Yeah. I know about right before that yeah. led to them. So the one right before is known as the Great Dying, also known as the Permian-Triassic extinction. It's quite a name. Yeah. It wiped out, I think, something like 70 or 80% of animal species on Earth, mm -hmm. which is why it's called that, because it was... As far as we know, the biggest mass extinction ever by a pretty large magnitude. And a lot of times these mass extinctions are used as the dividing lines between eras in paleontology. So this one marks the boundary between the Permian and the Triassic, which is why it's also known as the Permian-Triassic extinction and sometimes the end Permian 
extinction. But that was the one that kind of led the way to some dinosaurs popping up. The Triassic-Jurassic extinction was about 201 million years ago, so that marked the end of the Triassic. And the dinosaurs were already around at this point, but they weren't yet dominating the world. So when we talk about dinosaurs, it's actually pretty uncommon for it to be a Triassic dinosaur. Typically, they're from the Cretaceous, often from the Jurassic, rarely from the early Jurassic or Triassic, just because they weren't so ubiquitous back then. For quite a while, there's been a debate about what caused the Triassic-Jurassic extinction, and some of the leading theories are just like they were with the Chicxulub impactor versus volcanism or climate change or other possible strange causes people can come up with. There's like anoxic events we talked about where the ocean loses a lot of its oxygen and then everything in it seems to die and it can affect a lot of the ecosystem. So Percival and his colleagues looked for some more evidence specifically for volcanism. And what they were looking for was really mercury, because it turns out that when volcanoes erupt, they release mercury into the atmosphere. One of the lovely things, that's what you want, mercury everywhere. So they found several huge pulses of mercury in the sediment over about a one million year period. Hmm. That's a lot of volcanic activity. Mm -hmm. And the results are pretty similar to a massive impact. We talked about how when the Chicxulub impactor hit and it hit the sulfate area, it put sulfur into the upper atmosphere and that cooled down the whole earth. When volcanoes erupt, they also emit sulfates and do the same kind of thing, especially if it's a really big eruption. It gets up into the upper atmosphere and it cools down the whole earth and then plants die and then animals die and so on and so forth. Then you have a mass extinction. So... We know from the fossil record that the Triassic-Jurassic extinction knocked out lots of amphibians, lots of non-dinosaur reptiles, and even a lot of early therapsids, which are the ancestors to mammals. And what ended up happening is these animals went extinct, and then dinosaurs filled up all these niches that were left behind by them. There's still a lot of theories of why that happened. It could have been because they could move more quickly. They had that caudofemoralis muscle and they were bipedal. So, you know, maybe they could run around quickly. Simple answer. They're dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just awesome. So they just <laughs> kind of filled in all these niches. And then the Jurassic is really when you see all the dinosaurs popping up. You get the stegosaurs. You get, you know, all sorts of different ornithischians or ornithocelidans if you want to go down that road theropods, you've got Archaeopteryx flying, everything's going nuts in the Jurassic, and it just kind of continues into the Cretaceous. So pretty interesting article to show that volcanoes may have been the cause. It's in no way definitive because it could be that there was also something else going on, like an anoxic event that might have added to it. And there is actually some evidence of that. It's hard to say exactly what was going on, but it looks like volcanoes were doing quite a bit of erupting. And disrupting. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Next up, we have a couple trackway news items, which are always exciting. We like some good ichno fossils. And I'm going to start with the one that I thought was the most interesting. It was published in Sociedad Geológica España, or SGE, which is easier for me to say. And it was written by Labib Baudchiche. Hopefully I got that right. And others. What they found was a really awesome trackway in Morocco. So there are late Cretaceous prints, 
and there are 196 individual prints, which is pretty amazing. A lot of the discoveries we talk about are like one print, maybe four prints. You get like 10 or 20, you start to get excited because you can see how it was walking. 196 is pretty awesome. They're mostly sauropod tracks, and they're narrow to medium gauge, showing that they're probably titanosauriform, which is probably evident from being late Cretaceous. In addition, there's also an undetermined quadruped, likely an ornithischian, which is pretty cool to get thrown in the mix. Yeah. And there's actually like four or five kind of crisscrossing dinosaur tracks. So the picture they show, it's like a 90 degree angle. There's one set of tracks going one way and then crossing them is another set of tracks. So there are dinosaurs walking all over the place. A little traffic jam. A little bit. The coolest thing to me is that if this undetermined, likely ornithischian was four-legged, it was probably running based Mm. on the pattern of like where the hands and feet line up. You know, it kind of looks gallopy or something. Mm -hmm. And if it was running, it was probably going about 40 kilometers an hour, about 25 miles an hour. It's pretty fast. Yeah. So it was really trucking through there. (laughs) When I read that, I was thinking like, I wonder if it was trying to get out of the way of like a sauropod that was going to step on it. Could be. <laughs> or something. Or maybe, you know, something was chasing it. Just dart out real fast. Oh, and maybe the sauropod blocks it from whatever's chasing it. Yeah, it was like running into a herd to like mm-hmm. protect itself or something. You can come up with all sorts of fun stories that have zero scientific evidence to back them up. But I enjoy it. And real quickly, I just want to mention one from the Inner Mongolia, which is a Deinonychosaurian also known as a raptor, trackway from the late Cretaceous. So if you're into Deinonychosaurians, there's one there now. (laughs) (laughs) It was behind a paywall, like I couldn't get any access to it, so that all I could see was the title. Yeah, same here. uh, But that's an interesting dinosaur. Yeah, and I think it's the first one from the area, from what I could tell. Cool. Yeah. Next up is an article by Lita Shing and others published in Historical Biology, And they also found a Deinonychosaurid, but these were in Iran, which is a place we rarely talk about with regards to dinosaurs. They were found in the Alborz Mountains, which is just north of Tehran. It looked like it was within 20 or 30 kilometers, pretty close. And the prints were found near some coal beds. It didn't really talk about how they were discovered. I kind of wonder if that's related Interestingly, the toes don't really look like dromaeosaurids, so it might have been a troodontid, but they appear to be from the mid-Jurassic, which is really early for anything remotely like a Deinonychosaurid, considering Deinonychus wasn't even around for another 50 million years. (laughs) So it's a little weird, and there's still kind of a little bit of controversy about when dromaeosaurids and troodontids kind of started evolving, because... We have tracks in some cases much earlier than we see any actual remains of the dinosaurs, but they're pretty obvious because, you know, they're just the two prints. Mm -hmm. You know, the third toe is sticking off the ground with that claw on it. So you see just these two little prints all over the place, you know, (laughs) what kind of dinosaur it is. Yeah. Unless there's some other kind of sneaky dinosaur that has just two toes (laughs) that we haven't found yet. It's possible. Yeah. Especially in this case, because the toe lengths don't match with the dinosaurs that you might expect it to be. Yeah. And there's still a lot we don't know. Yep. 
Speaking of Lidaxing, Science Mag wrote a feature on him. So he's a paleontologist from the China University of Geosciences in Beijing, and he's really passionate about dinosaur footprints, as you may have guessed. He pops up in like any Asian dinosaur footprint article. It yeah, like. <laughs> it's really cool, the whole story about him. So he's been to over 100 sites throughout 31 of the 33 provinces in China, and Many of these sites were originally found by amateur fossil hunters. And so Xing is hoping to combine all of his data into a map of dinosaur habitats. And when he goes to these sites, he surveys the areas really quickly. He actually he learned to rock climb so that he could see some of the best preserved tracks nice. because those are often vertical. Yeah. <laughs> Before he did this work, there was no comprehensive report of fossil tracks in China. So this data helps a lot. And he got into dinosaurs when he was six years old. And then as a teenager, he built a database of 900 dinosaur names with Chinese translations that his mm. colleagues still use today. Nice. Yeah. And he's also got a collection of 200 specimens preserved in amber. So he's popping up a lot in those stories. He buys the amber from jewelry markets in Myanmar. And he and Ryan McKellar are the ones who described late last year the feathered baby dinosaur tail that was preserved in amber. It'll always be Burma to me. <laughs> Because I always describe it as Burmese amber. Yeah. <laughs> He's published more than 60 papers with Martin Lockley since 2012, averaging about one paper per month. Nice. And often these papers look at footprints as new evidence of when and where dinosaur species were around. Because, though, of the frequency of his publishing, some people think he might be in too much of a hurry. But one reason for this is because China is growing its industrial development. And that means there's new fossil sites being found, but also quickly destroyed. Hmm. One time he found a fossil footprint site on land owned by a local mining company. And then when the company found out, they broke up the site in the middle of the night so that Xing and his team couldn't halt their work by protecting these oh, prints. Man. Yeah. So now what he does is he keeps silent on what his team finds so that people in the area don't suspect what they're doing. And Xing said, quote, we need to move quickly and get more data before bad things happen. They are precious. Dinosaur footprints are great records from nature, not just stone pits, end quote. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. It's almost like an espionage kind of thing, like sneaking in, trying to like do some research. Modern day bone wars. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's pretty like low key, though. True. I was also thinking kind of like Indiana Jones with the adventure side, but he was causing all sorts of havoc. This mm -hmm. guy is trying to impact things as little as possible, it sounds like. Yeah. That's probably also really helpful with the uh, Burmese amber, mm -hmm. because I think those are still controlled by a like military non-governmental group. Yeah, so that's controversial, too, because some people are like, well, don't take it out of the country. But he has said that once things are controlled, then he would happily give it back. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting about taking things out of the country. I really don't mind it as long as it's kept in a museum that's public. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of American fossils that are found. And in most cases in the U.S., when fossils are dug up, you can sell them just to private collections. And some of those end up internationally and whatnot. And I always prefer when they're still in museums, regardless of where they end up, because mm -hmm. there are some countries that were just underwater, so they couldn't get any dinosaur fossils. So it's nice to be able to open a dinosaur museum. You know, we've got plenty of triceratops. Somebody else can have a skull here and there. <laughs> <laughs> and the same is true, I think, with China. You know, they've got hundreds and maybe even thousands of these feathered dinosaurs. So just filling the racks in the backs of museums is no fun. You want to get those on display somewhere. Yeah. Next up is a new 
dinosaur find. It's not a new species, but a new find. It was published in the Annals of Carnegie Museum by Gina Hannock and others. And what they found was a juvenile Barasaurus, which was named by Marsh back in 1890. That's actually included in the title of the article. Kind of interesting. <laughs> yep. And they found it in the Morrison Formation in Dinosaur National Monument on the Utah side. They found five partial vertebrae from this juvenile Barasaurus. And they know that it's a juvenile because its bones aren't yet fused. And we've talked before about how that's a good indicator of whether or not a animal is a juvenile or an adult if the bones are fused. So that way we can tell. And it's probably the youngest Barasaurus bones that have been found so far. Barasaurus is also not a very common fossil, so it's nice that we have another example, even though it is only five partial vertebrae. And if you hear the name Barasaurus and you're like, that sounds familiar, but I don't really remember what it is, it's probably because it's the diplodocid that's rearing at the American Museum of Natural History, and it's controversial that it's rearing. Mm -hmm. Although we talked about a paper a couple weeks ago where rearing may have been very common, so... Who knows? Maybe it's a good thing they haven't changed it. Next, this might be my favorite piece of news in a while. So Drumheller, which is in Alberta, Canada, and where the Royal Tyrrell Museum is, is considering renaming some of its streets after dinosaurs. Nice. Yeah. So the town of Drumheller, they launched an online poll to see which dinosaur names to use. And it's all part of Drumheller's Canada 150 celebrations, which aims to make Drumheller the dinosaur capital of the world. <laughs> or at least reinforce the idea. So the streets that will be renamed will be in the downtown area. And to keep people from being confused, the original street names will stay in place and residents won't have to change their addresses. Although if I lived there, I would change my mm. address. Yeah. But there are plans to have medallions of selected dinosaurs added to the street signs and digital maps with more information about the dinosaurs to get more people exploring downtown on foot. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's kind of like how some of the streets have a memorialized name, like how there's Avenue of the Americas, mm -hmm. which I think is the same as what? Fifth Sixth is. Avenue in New York. Yeah. But I don't think anybody writes Avenue of the Americas in their address. They just write Sixth Avenue. I don't know. <laughs> I guess you could if you felt like being fancy. Yeah. If I were voting, I think I would go for like ye or something. Something really short. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to write. I wouldn't want to write out like Therizinosaurus or Parasaurolophus or something well, I think time. they're thinking like Gorgosaurus and maybe Albertosaurus or something like yeah. that. T-Rex. Maybe. Tyrannosaurus is kind of a mouthful too. Most of the dinosaurs are pretty long names. Worth it though. To say you live on like Tyrannosaurus Rex Lane or something. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't mind spelling Ankylosaurus to people all the time if it meant <laughs> that I got to live on Ankylosaurus <laughs> Avenue. There you go. <laughs> Plus now you can get stamps or stickers with your address. You don't have to write it out. Yeah. I just think of when I have to spell it to people on the phone all the time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Could be fun though. Yep. <laughs> Next, in Winton, Queensland, Australia, scientists have found a very complete sauropod skeleton with gut contents. Ooh. I know, more good news. Yeah. <laughs> so David Elliott and his son found this skeleton two years ago while mustering sheep, near where another dinosaur had been found four years before that. Is mustering the same thing as herding? Is it called mustering when it's sheep? I guess so. Interesting. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know. This isn't a podcast about sheep. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> or were they arming them all? That's what I think of when I hear mustering. Oh, I think of like mustering up the courage to do something. Oh, okay. Mm. They're getting them all like amped up. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. <laughs> anyway, back to the gut contents. They might be horsetails. Ooh. I know. Very exciting. So the dinosaur will be called Judy after David's wife. She's been coordinating digs for the last decade, and Judy the dinosaur probably died young. It's not official yet which type of sauropod it was, but paleontologist Stephen Poropot said that he doesn't think it's a new species. So far, teeth, skull fragments, and 10 interconnected neck vertebrae have been found. The dig's going to resume in August with a number of scientists, and they're hoping to find up to 50% of the skeleton. And once Judy the dinosaur is excavated, she'll be put on display at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum, probably in, like, 2022. Cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Australia has a lot of good museums. I know. We need to go. They're pretty far spread out, though, unfortunately, because Australia is (laughs) big. Yeah, very big country. Next, extinct monsters shared an update of Maryland's Dinosaur Park in Laurel. So it's this 41-acre site where people have been finding dinosaurs since 1858, first by iron workers and then by paleontologists, including Marsh, Hatcher, Gilmore, and Lowell. So some big names there. Fossils found include a large sauropod femur and basal ceratopsian teeth. Dinosaur Park was formally dedicated in October 2008 and is a citizen science project. So schools can visit, they have open houses so visitors can help look for fossils, and all fossils found go to the county's collection, but really important finds end up at the National Museum of Natural History. So the site has some exhibits now, and there's also a climbable dinosaur skeleton, a garden, and picnic benches, and a series of displays about baby sauropods and a mural of dinosaurs, as well as other dinosaur art. So it sounds like a good place to visit. Yeah, especially for kids with Mm -hmm. all the activities. Indeed. Next, FutureCon which was put together by Smithsonian Mag and AwesomeCon, is a three-day conference that debuted this year. And part of it focused on Antarctic dinosaurs. So when dinosaurs lived, Antarctica was much warmer and covered in forests. And now it's a very difficult place to excavate fossils. And often it takes multiple seasons to retrieve even just one dinosaur specimen. So the Field Museum in Chicago was creating an exhibit for dinosaurs found in Antarctica. And we've talked a little bit about that. One of the exhibits will show a skeleton and reconstruction of Crylophosaurus elliotii. And there's also films being made about Antarctic dinosaurs, including one by producer David Clark, whose upcoming film will show dinosaurs in the Antarctic forest. And Clark directed Dinosaurs Alive, which is the 2007 IMAX film. And that one took eight months, 100 artists, and over 100,000 hours to render. So you can only imagine what this new film (laughs) will look like. In Utah, the Bureau of Land Management's Moab Field Office has free Jurassic walks and talks every weekend from now until Labor Day, which is in early September. So there are guided hikes to fossil and track sites at 8 or 9 a.m. on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and they also have hands-on educational activities for kids in the evenings. So if you're looking for something to do, go there. There's so much to do in Utah with dinosaurs. Mm Mm-hmm. Malta, Montana also has a really cool museum, the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum and Field Station. It's been around since 2002, and one of the biggest attractions is Leonardo, a Brachylophosaurus found near Malta. And Leonardo is a mummified dinosaur with a lot of preserved skin and soft tissues. Awesome. Yeah. So the museum recently opened up a new display of an animal distantly related to dinosaurs, a plesiosaur. 
but I mean, if we were to go there, we'd just see Leonardo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. I love going to those tiny museums in Montana and Colorado and stuff because it's always real dinosaur fossils. And by that, I mean, you know, not cast replicas. And there are always things that were found just like a few miles away. Mm-hmm. And usually when you go, there's a paleontologist or someone that knows a lot about it there that's just kind of sitting around because they don't have a ton of visitors. Mm-hmm. So you can be like, so what's going on with this? And they're like, oh, yeah, we found that eight years ago. We dug it up and it was on this family's ranch or whatever. It's great. <laughs> that dinosaur trail is so cool. Yep. The dinosaurs at the Milwaukee Public Museum in Wisconsin are getting an upgrade. Nice. So the museum has a Hell Creek dinosaur diorama that opened up to the public in 1983, and at that time was the largest installation in North America. Ooh. So the dromaeosaurids on display looked like scaly reptiles with black stripes, but now they're going to get bright yellow faces and brown and black feathers. Hmm. And the inspiration for this color scheme is the yellow-headed vulture. I don't think I know that one. That sounds kind of intense. It does. <laughs> They're also getting new sculpted claws because the old ones look, quote, very Frankenstein-like. Interesting. Mm-hmm. In the pictures, it looked really pretty. Yeah. I remember those dinosaurs from my childhood in Milwaukee. They mm-hmm. looked pretty awesome to me at the time. That's before you knew. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but I think it's also pretty easy to impress a child with dinosaurs. Yeah. That's true. They don't need to be like super scientifically accurate or anything. They just need to be big, maybe make a little noise, and then (laughs) you're set. Speaking of making noises, the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences posted on their Tumblr about Parasaurolophus sounds, and you can see Parasaurolophus in their dinosaur gallery. The hollow crest, which we've talked about, allowed it to warn of danger or attract mates and more. And the post has a video of a computer model that recreates the Parasaurolophus sound, which sounds a little bit like a didgeridoo musical. I think from what I remember about this recreation, which was, I think, actually done back in the 90s, mm-hmm. they based it kind of on a didgeridoo. Hmm. They, they kind of used a didgeridoo to think about the resonance that might happen mm-hmm. within the cavity. And it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I've heard it all over the place. There's about 20 YouTube videos of it. Maybe more. Yeah. The original is on like some obscure website where you have to like download the MP3. So a lot of people have recreated it. it sounds pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not as horn-like as you'd expect. I think a didgeridoo is probably the closest it's instrument. deeper, yeah. Yeah. And then they just kind of did different notes and things like that to give it a little feeling to it. Next, Friends of the Royal Alberta Museum Society, also known as FRAMS, recently celebrated their 35th anniversary, and Phil Curry gave a lecture called Exploring Alberta's Lost Worlds as part of the celebrations, and the idea was to encourage more people to become paleontologists and show people how Alberta is great for dinosaurs. It sure is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. The American Museum of Natural History also celebrated an anniversary, the 70th anniversary of Coelophysis. So Edwin Colbert and a team found a Coelophysis bone bed in Ghost Ranch, New Mexico in 1947. And Coelophysis was about eight feet long and looked kind of like a mini T-Rex. You can see the death assemblage of Coelophysis in the Hall of Cerisian Dinosaurs. Next, this was pretty interesting. The Royal Tyrrell Museum wrote a post about two research fields colliding based on a case study from Dinosaur Provincial Park. 
So just to take a step back first, paleontology is studying the history of all life on Earth through fossils, but oftentimes dinosaurs get the most attention. So what happened was back in 1995, Dr. Dennis Brahman, curator of palynology, which is the study of pollen grains and other spores. And not just a misspelling of paleontology, apparently. They were working on a site of fossilized plants, which are rare. And he and his team ended up finding an articulated ornithomimid which was considered important. So work on the plants stopped so that the dinosaur could be excavated. Hmm. And the skeleton was exciting. It had feather marks on its arm and was the first evidence of feathers in North America. But unfortunately, the plant fossils beneath the dinosaur were mostly destroyed. Fortunately, though, other plant sites have been found in the area. So Brahman and his colleagues can use them to reconstruct the environment. But it's kind of interesting, I guess. At least in this case, it seems that dinosaurs win. Yeah, and I think that might also be because dinosaur fossils are a lot more rare. There's a lot more preserved plant fossils than there are dinosaur fossils. Mm -hmm. So you kind of go for whatever's harder to find. Next, New Orleans, Louisiana has an official unofficial Jurassic Park musical called Triassic Park, and that is Park with a Q. It's a musical comedy, and the description reads, quote, Chaos is unleashed upon the not-so-prehistoric world when one dinosaur in a clan of females spontaneously turns male. The mutation spawns a chain reaction of identity crises, forcing the dinosaurs to question the very facts of life they've held as truth, end quote. And Triassic Park is an off-Broadway musical started in 2012, and it's won awards. It reminds me of a show we saw in New York in, like, 2010, 2011 called Jurassic Park with a Q. I wonder if that's the exact same play. That was the same plot. Yeah. So maybe they just renamed it. I yeah. Don't know. Maybe they got sued or something because Jurassic Park. We're calling it the official unofficial musical. I bet it is the same one because it was Triassic Park with a Q versus Jurassic Park with a Q with the exact <laughs> same plot. It's got to be the same thing. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was really good. I remember watching that. It was all people. I don't think they actually had dinosaur costumes. No, they, but they acted like dinosaurs. Yeah, and I, they might have had like a tail or something simple going on. Yeah, that was that was cool. It was in a really small theater, and I mm -hmm. think like everyone else there knew someone in the play. Yeah, it was part of some <laughs> festival that was going on we happened to hear about. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> That's one of the best things about New York is all the plays, mm -hmm. especially the off-Broadway ones because they're so much cheaper and you can find really specific stuff like, <laughs> say, a musical about dinosaurs <laughs> that would never make it out to Broadway because <laughs> there aren't enough people. But, you never know. Yeah. I guess if you do something like walking with dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. but. <laughs> <laughs> Next Georgia, the state of Georgia, had a special election at the end of June and a bunch of people dressed up in inflatable T-Rex costumes to campaign for John Ossoff, the 30-year-old Democratic candidate who is running for Georgia's 6th Congressional District. I don't have too much to say about that other than that's cool, basically <laughs> walk into a room full of dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. I've, I wonder why they chose that. Probably just because they had the costumes. Could be. And in one of the pictures, I saw a pink T-Rex. I couldn't tell if it was painted. Hmm. I thought you were going to say, because I saw that you had the age, I thought you were going to say like a 90-year-old, and that's why it was like a dinosaur joke. No. But no. No, he's <laughs> <only> 30. 30. <laughs> that's because dinosaurs are so hip and cool. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, the misnomer that dinosaurs are like really old and archaic and stuff is kind of weird, considering most of them died by the time they were like 30. 
They it's, were like live fast, die young, not like these ancient lumbering <laughs> things. Well, it's kind of like how we used to think of dinosaurs as yeah, sluggish and yeah. dragging and all that. Yep, but T-Rex especially, like they're pretty much all teenagers. Yeah. And, you know, that's when they died because they're fossilized. <laughs> they're not doing any more running around after that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. There's also a new coloring book called Dinosaurs Live by paleoartist Ted Rechlin. Exclamation point. At the end of live. Yeah, not <laughs> at the end of the paleoartist name. <laughs> it looks pretty cool. So in the sample on the publisher's website, there's images of dinosaurs and their skeletons that you can color. And the pages also have facts about that dinosaur. It's meant to be part comic, part interpretive text, and all coloring, as it says. <laughs> it has 31 full-page spreads, all of North American dinosaurs, including favorites like Stegosaurus and Acrocanthosaurus, which... You may know as the villain in Raptor Red. Sounds like it's a villain in a lot of things. I don't think it's ever the hero. Maybe I don't know. Raptor Red, I think, is just about the only time when raptors are a protagonist. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, there's not enough dinosaur fiction like that. True. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Dr. Victoria Arbor. Dr. Victoria Arbor, who just discovered a new ankylosaur, Zool, has been on the show before, and it's really great to have you back. 
Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and I also, real quick, want to thank you for putting a pronunciation with your discovery. <laughs> because that's really uncommon, and these names are so hard to say. So I really appreciate it. Yep. Well, hopefully one part of the name is easy to say. Yeah, yeah. You noticed I didn't even do the species name. <laughs> By the way, my coworkers think that this name is awesome. I was getting pinged like all day when the news came out. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Yeah, we were pretty happy with it. So I'm glad that other people had enjoyment from it as well. <laughs> Yeah. So last time we talked, you were just switching to the Royal Ontario Museum. Was that to work on this new find? Partly. This was actually kind of a funny serendipitous coincidence. So I'm sort of here in Toronto on a fellowship, like a Canadian sort of federal fellowship program. And so the project that I'm sort of officially working on long term here is actually on dinosaur biogeography. I'm still in the really early stages of that project. But right before I arrived in Toronto, David Evans, the curator here at the ROM, uh, let me know that the ROM had been able to acquire this amazing specimen. And so obviously, we were going to work on that right away. So that was sort of what I charged into uh, right at the beginning of my move here. So that was great. Awesome. So were you, you weren't really part of the discovery because it got stumbled upon by someone excavating a tyrannosaur, right? Yeah, that's right. It was discovered in Montana by a crew digging up a tyrannosaur skeleton. So either Gorgosaurus or Albertosaurus, we're not sure exactly which species yet. Mm -hmm. And they were sort of digging around and increasing the quarry size to see if they had collected all of the elements of the tyrannosaur. And their sort of skid steer, so kind of like a bulldozer, sort of was excavating and bumped into the tail club. Hmm. And because the ankylosaur was completely buried, it was under like meters and meters of rock, meters and meters back from the cliff edge. It's not something that would have eroded out like for thousands of years, probably. Mm. So that's partly why it's so well preserved, because none of it was ever exposed to the surface before that sort of accidental bump. Awesome. Yeah, that's like the perfect way to discover something, just like the tip of a limb <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of a story from Alberta where the beautiful death-posed ornithomimus that's at the Terrell Museum mm -hmm. was also discovered kind of accidentally in a similar way where, uh, as I understand it, a group of the folks from the Tyrell were actually there because there was a beautiful leaf layer. So there were some really nice fossil plants. And as they were flipping up this layer to get at the plants, they found a whole articulated ornithomimid. So sometimes these things happen and, and it's great because then you get these beautiful specimens, but I'm sure it's a little frustrating for the people who want like the plant fossils and not <laughs> this dinosaur that gets in the way. So. Oh, that's cool. So is the Tyrannosaur and Zool, are they in like the exact same layer? Like were they around at the same time or possibly buried together or are they more separated than that? Yeah, it's a good question. So Zool comes from about a meter above where the Tyrannosaur was collected okay. um, and then off to the side. But this summer, we're hoping to get back to the quarry for a few days. We'll be going there with some of our geologist colleagues and hopefully we'll have a chance to sort of really get a good understanding of like the depositional environment and what exactly it means to be a meter away within this bone bed. Mm -hmm. Cool. Were you part of the actual like excavating process for this find? No, sadly, I was not. <laughs> this was actually excavated was mostly in 2014. Okay. So not too long ago, but uh, well before I became involved with it. 
But now you've got like this enormous, what was it, like 30 tons? Is that how much oh my, it weighs? It's, it's just outrageous. I think it's like 35,000 pounds oh, and wow. like 15,000 kilograms. <laughs> and we just went out to take a look at this. So we're talking about the belly block. So, so far the skull and the tail club have been prepared. Mm-hmm. Not like full, the, the skull is completely out. The tail club we're leaving sort of half embedded in the sediment because of the soft tissue preservation and it's articulated and it's just really long too. So just mm-hmm. getting it out as one piece would be really tricky. But it's kind of like uncovered to the level that makes sense for the research we're doing on it right now. But then the belly block is just so huge. I mean, we went out to look at it again just this week, actually, on Tuesday. Um, And it's like having a whole quarry just in front of you. (laughs) It's just so huge. We can like get up and stand on top of it because there's still areas where it hasn't been like prepared down to the bones. You can sort of like stand on top and it's like being in the field, basically. So it's it's. It's just kind of dumb, actually. Like, I'm, it's it's like intimidating to look at it. So, so we're pretty excited. So that block, uh, we can see the pelvis and the dorsal vertebrae um, going up towards the neck, and we can see ribs and we can see osteoderms right now. So some of the big giant spikes. So we're hoping that when we get it cleaned up. And we go all the way down and sort of cleat. So right now it's kind of belly side up. Mm. We're hoping that once we sort of clean that down, we can flip it over and then clean down from what would have been the top of the body and hopefully find more skin impressions, which would be great. Yeah. Is there something about them getting preserved upside down that helps? Because there's also that other notosaur that's at the Royal Tyrrell Museum that was upside down. Or is it just because they're top heavy? So like if they sink, they sink top first. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not really sure. But a colleague of mine, uh, Jordan Mallon at the Canadian Museum of Nature and Don Henderson at the Tyrrell are taking a look at the taphonomy of upside down ankylosaurs. So that should be interesting (laughs) when they finish that up. But I definitely think that being preserved upside down helps with getting the osteoderms preserved and the skin impressions, just because as far as we know, like most of the osteoderms are on the back and the flanks Mm -hmm. and not really along the belly per se. So it's not like they have like, they're not like completely encased. It's sort of on the back and the sides. And so if it flips over and is on its back and you've got sort of all the rest of the body like pressing down into the sediment, I think that definitely helps with getting the nice skin preservation and keeping the osteoderms in place. And it must have been buried reasonably quickly to keep it from being like scavenged and pulled apart by water. So we don't know exactly what killed this dinosaur yet, but whatever the case, it must have been buried like relatively quickly without it just sitting out on the surface for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you even had like an eyelid, don't you? Yeah, it's so (laughs) cool. It's one of my favorite things about ankylosaurids. And so far, that's a feature that we only see in the derived North American ankylosaurids. So the guys with tail clubs that have sort of migrated from Asia back into North America, that group, for whatever reason, evolves this really bizarro bone in their eyelid. So it's a, it must be an osteoderm <laughs> that's just in the eyelid for some reason. And it's really cool. So there's a couple of specimens where it's preserved, uh, but it's always really neat to have, like, it's still pretty rare, all things considered. So... I like this particular specimen because the eyelids are kind of half down. So it looks Mm -hmm. a little bit like he's blinking. Like you can really picture how those work Yeah, Mm -hmm. in relation to the eye. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. That skull looks great, especially from the left side. That's definitely, it's like photographic side. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It definitely has one side is a little bit more squished than the other, but yeah, it's a, it's an amazing skull. It's huge too. It's basically 
Besides Ankylosaurus, this is probably the biggest Ankylosaurid in North America. We're estimating that the body is we estimated six meters uh, when we were sort of doing the media release. When we went to look at the body block earlier this week, we were like, mm, it might be bigger than six <laughs> meters. So, <laughs> so we just have to get it cleaned up and, and like seven meters might not be crazy for this particular fellow. So wow. we will see. <laughs> we just have to get it cleaned up. <laughs> yeah. Don't you have like some keratin recovered too along the tail there? Well, this is something we're really excited about. So we have some really beautiful examples of skin impressions in the sandstone. So sort of classic dinosaur skin impressions Mm -hmm. like you would expect, like you see in like hadrosaurs all the time. Well, not all the time, but like fairly commonly. Um, So we've got some great skin impressions. But then we also have some really unusual preservation that isn't just impressions in the rock, but it's actually this black organic material. So we've got some scales that don't have bone underneath. And then we also have some of this material over top of the spikes, the bony spikes on the tail. And so it's clearly the keratin sheath that's been preserved. And what we're very excited about is the opportunity to test for keratin. So we know it represents the sheath. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, does it contain any of those original keratin proteins? Oh, gotcha. So we're very excited (laughs) to give that a try. It's, It's a really cool new field of research called molecular paleontology. And some of my colleagues down at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and North Carolina State University like Mary Schweitzer Mm -hmm. and uh, former PhD student Allison Moyer. They've done some amazing work where they use sort of like immunoreactivity to test for ancient proteins. So they can use like antibodies like you would use on modern cells and modern proteins and they will react to these ancient 75 million year old dinosaur fossils. So it's really exciting. So we're hoping to try some of those techniques and see what other kinds of like biochemical or geochemical approaches we can use to look for some of these ancient proteins. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, we're really excited. So we don't know if it's going to work, but we, I think it's got as good a likelihood as anything. It's just really organic looking for a lack of a better word. Yeah. It's kind of like when you see sort of like carbonized plants or like really organic layers when you're out sort of digging in quarries. Um, That's just really what this looks like. So I think it's got a really good chance of preserving some of the original materials. Yeah, it kind of reminded me too of some of those partially preserved feathers around some of the Chinese dinosaurs, where they have that kind of black keratin. And was that the one where they were using the antibodies on it too? And it like fluoresced around them? Yeah, so I think it's been used, it's definitely been used on claw keratin. So uh, Hmm. one of the papers that came out recently was on uh, testing the claws, so like the claw sheath of Cytopati. So it's actually the big mama specimen, Mm -hmm. I think, like brooding (laughs) over after. I think that's the one that they tested. And it reacted uh, with that material. And then I, I can't, I think it's been used on feathers also. Cool. I don't know if I saw that Cytopati one. I'm gonna have to check that out. It's pretty recent. I think it was late last year that it came out. Okay. It might have gotten swept up with like all the SVP stuff when there was so much news. (laughs) There was a lot of news around then, that's for sure. Yeah. Cool. So with this enormous block, what's your plan going forward to try to 
get through all that material. Ship it down. Yeah, so so this right now the specimen is actually too big to fit inside the Royal Ontario Museum. <laughs> um, it's too heavy and too large to go through any doors. So right now it's being sort of stored and prepared out at Research Casting International, hmm. which is a really cool place. Um, they do lots of exhibit work and preparation work. They did the renovations on the Natural History Museum in Berlin, and they've done all kinds of exhibit work for the ROM. And so they're located about two hours away from here and they've got some folks preparing it and uh yeah it's just going to be a slow careful process because (laughs) whenever you have skin impressions involved it it just can make it go a lot slower than you know you might expect like even considering how big it is i think it's going to be a challenging job but we're excited about it yeah i saw something recently i'm not sure if you saw this paper but they were talking about using I want to say micro CT scanning or maybe mm-hmm. some kind of laser technology to try to see like a little bit into the material while they're preparing it. Have you seen that? Oh, interesting. Um, I I have used a micro CT scanner before, uh, but the one that we had out at the University of Alberta only took things like a couple centimeters in size. So I have I don't know I don't know if we could use anything because this thing is just too big. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But it would be really interesting if there was a way we could sort of peer inside a little bit and just know what to expect. But I think I think it would be challenging to work out exactly what the skin impressions or the maybe the preserved skin might even look like through some of those things. It can be hard enough just to tell bone sometimes in these CT scans. So yeah, I think we might have to do it the old fashioned way with (laughs) our eyeballs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess with skin impressions, especially you might have the same kind of rock. Like there might not be really any difference between the chemistry. So nothing like that would really help. Yeah, so the impressions will just be like the rock in a sense. Mm -hmm. And if we're getting sort of more like preserved original skin, like the keratin, that's probably going to be really thin and hard to differentiate. Hmm. So how does that work if you're you have the actual specimen and then there's a skin impression that obviously kind of faces the specimen? How do you make sure you're not chipping away the skin impression when you're getting towards it like that seems Um, impossible so the great thing is that i don't have to do (laughs) i have prepared fossils before but i think that that kind of work is best left to the really good experts at it Mm -hmm. um so we're really lucky because we have some really excellent technicians at the royal ontario museum uh shino and ian who are the full-time technicians at the rom and and prepared the tail they do a great job. They know what to look for. They know to go slow and to, you know, to keep your eye out for different things. And yeah, it's really just about being able to recognize when you hit those layers that reveal the skin impressions. Hmm. And you hope that the rock is actually going to break along some of those as well. Okay. That's kind of what I was imagining. Like you get down to the layer and then you could maybe peel it back or something. Yeah, yeah. That, that Yes, it, it can work like that. It, it doesn't always, I don't think so. That's just the ideal. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. So I have to ask, because obviously you named the dinosaur after Ghostbusters. Are you a big Ghostbusters fan? I 
would say I'm a reasonably big Ghostbusters fan, <laughs> and it, it's not one of the ones I can quote like to the same extent as like Jurassic Park or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I grew up with the Ghostbusters cartoon show. Oh, sorry, the real Ghostbusters cartoon show, <laughs> because there were two Ghostbusters cartoon shows. And I a couple years ago, when I was working on the ankylosaurs from Alberta and also one from New Mexico that became Zia Pelta, I remember thinking about how it would be really funny to name an ankylosaur after Zool because they just looked so similar and it's it's a fun name to say it's short it starts with a Z and I just thought that would be really great and so when we had this amazing new ankylosaur in front of us at the ROM at first I actually I wasn't convinced it was a new species so we sat with it for a long time to make sure we were really comfortable that it was new and when we sort of finally were like okay yeah we can't refer this to any of the existing species so we should give it a new name I was just kind of like joking around with David and I was like, uh, yeah, so what about if we just called it Zool? And he was like, uh, yeah, like that's what we have to do now that you said that. So, so that's pretty, so I was kind of joking, but he really liked it. So there we are. Amazing. So what specifically differentiated it enough? Was it like the eyelid or? No, the eyelid is something that we see in a couple of other species like Euoplocephalus and Dioplosaurus at least. Some of the things that were different were the shape of the horns at the back of the skull that are behind the eye. They've got sort of these long horns, kind of like what we see in Scolosaurus hmm. uh, from the two medicine formation and the dinosaur park formation. It's got these nice long squamosal horns. And then the big thing that was really weird and different about it was that uh, the 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 sort of pattern of tiles that go across the snout and up onto the forehead of ankylosaurs from Alberta and Montana. Usually these are all sort of flat and they're like a series of nice like flat hexagons and they're just kind of like making this really cool pattern. And when we looked at Zool's skull, all of these little tiles kind of like were laid over top of each other. They had these weird peaks at the back and especially over top of the eyes, um, sort of in the forehead region. They got really sort of pyramid-like and peaked, uh, almost reminiscent of some of the ones that we see in Mongolia. Hmm. And so it's a subtle difference, but it's something that we haven't seen in any other skull from Alberta or Montana. Uh, and we felt that that sort of justified separating it out as something different. Yeah. Yeah, cool. that's really interesting. Yeah, I know the horns. I'm familiar with like the different types of horns, but I hadn't heard about the scales. That's really cool. Yeah, the scales are really neat. And there's something that's useful for telling the different species apart if you're careful, <laughs> because <laughs> each skull is a little bit distinct. There's obviously some like plasticity and when they're developing that they mm. can have sort of slightly different shapes and patterns. But if you sort of take a look at the overall pattern, the overall shapes, that can tell you some things about how they differ from each other. Cool. And then you also, I saw that Dan Aykroyd showed up to kind of present Zool. Did yes. you get a chance to meet him and talk to him about dinosaurs? I did. I sort of hosted him for that tour through the ROM Paleo Collection, and it was definitely a cool and strange experience, <laughs> um, but wonderful. So Dan Aykroyd is actually a really big supporter of Canadian paleontology. Yeah. Um, he's Canadian himself, and he has gone out for multiple expeditions in the Grand Prairie region of Alberta with my PhD supervisor, Phil Curry, mm-hmm. and uh, did a lot of support of the Phil Curry Museum that was built up in Grand Prairie. Um, so he's no stranger to Canadian paleontology. And so David Evans at the ROM sort of knows him through these various connections that we have through Canadian paleo. 
and so when the paper was accepted, we were like, oh, we should probably like tell Dan Aykroyd that we're doing this. <laughs> like, you know, that seems like the appropriate thing to do. So David fired off an email being like, oh, you know, we're we've chosen to name it this and we hope you're excited. And, you know, let us know if you want to come by and see it any time. And then a couple of weeks later, they they were there like coming in to meet Zool. So that was really great. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I was kind of wondering if it might have been as like a thank you for all the work that he's done and like, you know, donating to the Philip J. Curry Museum and all that. I mean, I certainly think that's wonderful. It wasn't really when I picked the name. I, I picked it because I thought it was cool and funny and yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about it much more than that. But it's obviously so wonderful that he's been a big supporter of paleontology and paleontological research. Yeah, and it was it was really generous of him to film that little sort of introduction for us because, uh, you know, that that's a cool thing to do. So, yeah, definitely. people seem to really like that. Yeah, I keep noticing I'm on more and more stuff. Like, I think he narrated a series about dinosaurs in Canada oh, pretty yeah, recently. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Dino Hunt Canada, which was uh, on History Channel Canada, was narrated by him as well. So he keeps finding his way into all these like cool <laughs> paleontology projects, which is pretty neat. Oh, and while we were there, uh, we didn't get this on film, I don't think, but we I was chatting with him about ankylosaurs, and he offered up of his own volition that ankylosaurs were his favorite group of dinosaurs. Yeah. Nice. So... <laughs> Maybe he was just saying that, but I like to think that he meant it. So I thought that was pretty cool. They are the best. I mean, it's just, it's just obvious that they're the best. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. So. so is there anything else that you're working on or you'd like to share? The main things that we're working on right now are figuring out how we can share Zool through the ROM, through exhibits. So we're working on planning and proposing uh, ways to display the fossils at the Royal Ontario Museum. So that's all still pretty early stages, but it's really fun. I haven't really done exhibit type project development before, so that's been exciting for me personally. And it's also just such a great specimen. I, I hope that we can like show it off as soon as possible. And we are planning what to do for the field season, visiting the quarry. We're describing some of the other material that was collected from that quarry because, of course, it's not just Zool. It's all kinds of other dinosaurs that represent basically like an entire ecosystem that we don't know about. Um, so we're starting to work on identifying and preparing that material. And we're also starting to delve into how to test for ancient proteins. So it's all pretty exciting. Awesome. Yeah. Are you thinking of doing, I, I'm trying to remember, we talked about the Mayasora exhibit that was in Canada. I want to say that was at the Royal Ontario Museum, oh, too. Oh, it was. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Have you considered doing something like that where it's like an interactive excavation thing? We have so many ideas right now. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could share them. I, I can't really talk about anything until we actually get it like finalized yeah. and approved and, and underway. But uh, if all goes to plan, it's going to be amazing. We're going to have all kinds of great things to share. So awesome. Yeah, but the Mayasaur exhibit definitely was a real like landmark exhibit at the ROM back in the 90s. Yeah. I lived in Nova Scotia, so I didn't grow up in Toronto, but I do remember seeing that exhibit when we were on like a family vacation to Toronto and it was pretty cool. They did a lot of things, a lot of things that were sort of like groundbreaking for paleontology exhibits at the time. So yeah. uh, if we can live up to the Mayasaur exhibit, I will be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a great fossil to work with, so that always helps. <laughs> yeah, we, it's, it's a great fossil. So uh, yeah, and it was just so exciting to have 
our specimen and the Tyrol specimen sort of hitting the news in the same week because they're both great fossils, and, but they also represent such different stories about ankylosaurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I thought it was it was a, a real banner week for ankylosaurs that week. That's yeah, for sure. Definitely. That was like my favorite week of dinosaurs ever. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a good week. That's for sure. <laughs> it was almost confusing, though, because a lot of people didn't know the difference between the two. So yeah. they were like, it's there's true. this Zool thing, at, you know, and it's got all this <laughs> preservation and now it's on display at the Royal Tyrol. It's like, no, that's not. And that doesn't have a club. I have noticed sometimes that people are getting a bit confused, but, you know, hopefully when they actually go see it or if they read more, then they sort of figure out what's going on. I mean, they look so different to me. Like, yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, that's obviously not Zool. Like, the Tyrol <laughs> specimen is obviously not out. You know what I mean? Like, they're yeah. just so different. But yeah, anyway, it was it was a funny week, quite coincidental. So yeah, hopefully, like, by next year, we'll have even more research published and more things to talk about for this specimen. So is the best place for people to keep up with you still your Twitter, at Victoria Arbor? Yep, that's probably the best place to get all the late-breaking news, Zool or otherwise. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for coming back on. It's always great to talk to you. Yes, thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you again so much, Victoria. That was an awesome interview. Yeah, we had fun. And we can't wait to see that dinosaur as it gets uncovered. Yes. I'm really hoping for a Mayasaur style exhibit at the Royal Ontario Museum because we haven't been to that museum yet and that would be a great excuse to go there. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. They do have to whack it down a little bit though before they can get it inside, it sounds like, because it basically only fits in a warehouse right now. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> I was thinking that too because Jim Kirkland, right, with the Utah mm-hmm. Raptor block. That one's only nine tons. Yeah. This one's 35. Well, it's, yeah, I thought it was 35 tons, but it's 35,000 pounds. Oh, so really, right. it's only like 17 tons. But That's still, still almost twice as big. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know if you could put that not on the ground floor. <laughs> I hope they come up with a really awesome display. There's so much to work with. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now for our dinosaur of the day, a Loro Titan, which was a request from Braced via Facebook. And I hope I pronounced your name correctly. We looked it up. I'm not sure. So it was a Lambiosaurine hadrosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now far eastern Russia, found in the Sagayan Formation. Braced shared with us a photo that he took at the Museum of Natural Science in Brussels, and it's known as the Russian Swan of Hadrosaurs. It's got a long neck and a battle axe-shaped crest. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh, the name means gigantic swan. 
There's only one species, Alorotitan arharensis, and the species name refers to where the fossils were found in Arhara County. It was described in 2003 by Pascal Godfrey, Yuri Bolotsky, and Vladimir Alifanov. The holotype consists of a nearly complete skeleton, and it's the most complete lambiosaurine found outside of Western North America and one of the most complete dinosaurs found in Russia. It's missing its hands and feet, probably because there were scavengers that ate them before Alorotitan was buried. Just the hands and feet? That's kind of weird. It's probably missing some ribs too, I'm guessing. Could be. At the end of the Mesozoic, Lambiosaurines were numerous and diverse in Asia, but not in North America. This suggests that the climates in Asia and North America were different at the time. Alorotitan had a long neck, 18 vertebrae, and before Alorotitan was found, the longest hadrosaur neck that was known had 15 vertebrae. Although... Number of vertebrae doesn't necessarily mean length of neck because we have the same number of neck vertebrae as a giraffe does. (laughs) It's true. Because they're just huge vertebrae. (laughs) But still, if it has more. Yeah. So its battle axe or hatchet-shaped crest points backward, and that's different from other hadrosaurs with crests. This crest may have been used for attracting mates or to let others know that they were the same species. It had a hollow structure, which may have allowed it to make low-frequency calls. The crest expands from the nasal bones. And if this is true, it would be similar to what scientists think Parasaurolophus could do. However, parts of the crest found were fragmentary or crushed, so it's unclear what route the nasal passage took. We would need to find another skull to know for sure. Alorotitan had a stiff tail, though it's unclear if they all had stiff tails or if this one had a pathology. We'd need to find more specimens to know for sure. Mm. Alorotitan was large. It may have grown up to 26 feet or 8 meters long. It was bipedal and quadrupedal. And it was an herbivore that could grind its food with its hundreds of teeth that were continuously replaced. It's found to be most closely related to Corythosaurus and Hypocrosaurus. Other animals that lived in the same time and place were Lambiosaurines, Caronosaurus, and Amurosaurus, the Hadrosaurine Kerberosaurus, as well as theropods, nodosaurids, turtles, and crocodilians. And our fun fact of the day goes back to the great dying, because what's more fun than mass extinction? Fun? (laughs) Fun to talk about, maybe? Mm. So the Permian-Triassic boundary, which was about 252 million years ago, also known as the great dying, wiped out most of the vertebrates on land. And interestingly, right after the mass extinction, Lystrosaurus accounted for about 90% of terrestrial vertebrates in that early Triassic period. And even though Lystrosaurus sounds like it was a dinosaur, it's not a dinosaur. It's actually a therapsid, which is a group that also contains all modern mammals. So it's actually closer related to us than it is to dinosaurs. Although it does look superficially kind of like a dinosaur because it's got sort of reptilian looking skin and it's quadrupedal and all that kind of stuff. It also kind of looks like a dog. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, the group that Lystrosaurus is within, I think the name means like four-toothed dog or something like that. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. So that kind of goes back to our point about how right after the Great Dying, When the Triassic period started, dinosaurs didn't immediately take over. It was really between the Triassic and Jurassic when that extinction happened that really gave dinosaurs that final push to kind of take over. Although the Triassic is about 50 million years long. So that's almost all the way, if you measured from today backwards, you'd get almost all the way back to dinosaurs. (laughs) That's just how long dinosaurs were around. It's pretty crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, 
And if you would like to join our growing community on Patreon, please check out our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. You can also help us shape our rewards by filling out our survey. She's asking nicely. I am. Not begging. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening and until next time.